0: Okay, perfect. Uh, welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast, episode number 29, I believe. So we're still going strong even amongst the lockdown here in, in the UK and, and stuff across the pond in Ireland as well. I'm um, delighted to be joined this morning by David Dunn, who's a performance nutritionist. Um, I will go through some of his current and former employers, but it might take me a while, Danny. But welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem at all. I'm, I'm looking forward to today. Something slightly different for our listeners anyway. Um, okay, so just to introduce you briefly then, Danny, and then we're going to revisit later on in the podcast. So currently studied a part-time PhD at Liverpool, John Moores, um, co-founder of Hexis, your business that you're running day-to-day operationally, which we'll speak a bit more later on, involved with British Canoe and individual support around sports, boxing, cycling, and golf um, i'm sure there would be a couple to add on there former of harlequins nutritionist for harlequins european rider cup team and the european tour team wiggins bradford balls obviously qpr where i first met you in both the academy and the first team some stuff with orico over in the states some stuff in nba some stuff around athletics in the us and you wanted me to say that not in salazar's group that was a that was an important point um, and also some stuff around in GA, St. Brendan's, your local club, which is now TCG, um, who you play for. And and at London, we must, mustn't must forget you played under us as management and help us help, set up the nutritional support there. So you've done loads of things, and we'll revisit that later on. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on with such a wealth experience.
1: No, cheers. Like I said, thanks, thanks a million for having me. Looking forward to to getting in and discussing, well, I don't know, all, all things nutrition, GAA, sports performance. We'll, we'll wait and see
0: see what comes up. Perfect. And, and we'll go for your career in the second part. I'm just flipping it today. So I'm going to flip things around. Um, th- I want to jump straight into some nutritional questions. Um, obviously, sure, yeah. you're the expert. Let's get you on and, and see what your, your views are. So when going into a new role or working with a new team or a new, or a new individual athlete or however you go in, at what capacity, what's your first things you're looking at? So whether you go straight in the building, what's the first thing you do and what you're looking at?
1: Yeah, it's a good question and it's it's interesting because you might get some practitioners that try go in and and try to make a name for themselves early and try to flip everything on their head but you know I'm a big believer that when you go into any organization the first thing you've got to do is to try build trust. Um odds are that the people in that organization, the players, the staff, they've all worked with another nutritionist in some capacity before and you're you're now new in the door. So you know why should they listen to you more than they listen to the previous person or if you're saying something different or if the previous person said something different um how do you just establish that trust so the first thing i do when i go in the door i suppose is is just you know observe try learn as much as i can from from the coaches in that environment from the players and actually try to build some relationships up because i i suppose they need to respect me or they need to at least trust me to to then listen to some of my advice or you know be able to take on what I'm trying to say. So I think you know initially when I would go in it it would al- almost very much be yeah observe build relationships don't be a nuisance uh, just just try get your hands dirty and help out where it's needed uh, and I suppose the majority of the time early on in roles that's that's doing some of the dog work and and it's important for practitioners to do that you know I think you'll know yourself you know sport is is always a roller coaster and there's always highs and lows throughout a season throughout a week throughout a competition so you kind of have to or at least from my from my experience anyway you need to show that you know you're willing to work for them um that and and all, probably also that you're willing to sort of be vulnerable and put yourself out there because again i think it, they'll be more inclined to to trust you when you present the real you as opposed to i'm super professional this is what you have to do this is this 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 so yeah, I would say that's probably the the very first thing I'd do. Like I said, sort of observe, build relationships, work on a establishing establishing trust and, and a bit of respect.
0: No, perfect, Danny. Good answer. So obviously it might range depending on who where you've gone into, what the support was like before, what the culture's like, but from a time frame perspective, how long do you see that lasting? Um and maybe give a range of different examples for your career.
1: Yeah, it, I mean. It varies is the honest answer. And I don't think you can say for an organization that, you know, it's going to all be done in in X period of time. I think what you'll find with any organization is you'll you'll have athletes that are early adopters, much like with, you know, various streams of technology. Some people will buy in sooner um, than others. And, and that's okay. And what you'll often find is the people that buy in sooner kind of give you a platform to to have an impact and make change to kind of show your worth to the players that maybe didn't buy in at the start. So I think a lot of this can actually be profiled, which is quite interesting. I, I think some of this can, you know, different people have different levels of autonomy. Um, some people are more reliant on, on expert support. Some people are, are very happy with, you know, themselves being in charge and just dipping in and out of us when we need. But I would say it could vary from a player perspective. You know, you could, you could establish trust in a relationship and get on with somebody very well within one conversation. Somebody could leave that conversation and go. I really like him; he's a great guy. But for another person, it could take it could take two years for them to fully buy into the process. Um, I would say across most of my organisations, you like to think that you kind of give yourself, you know, to really have a an impact on on the culture. I would say you want to try you want to try have shifted that culture within the first year. But it's you know for some individuals it could take longer. Like I said, for some individuals it could be the end of that first conversation you've managed to learn about their you know their family tell your background you know hear what they want to achieve and you know understand the person as a whole and and that could be the thing that moves them on
0: perfect and what sort of thing then for those real tough cookies not only players but maybe some staff who are, who are just not receptive of what you're trying to say what sort of things do you because it can be a personal thing isn't it when you're trying to get your message across and you know you're basically just getting battered away at times what sort of strategies do you adopt then to try and maybe overcome or or, or change their mind or just accept that they're not gonna have your advice and how do you go on about your business
1: I think again depending on the individual um, I think the first thing I need to do is probably respect the decision that that they don't feel that they need this information at this moment in time they've probably made that decision for a reason and you know the majority of the time it will be down to a belief system that they have so if I go in all guns blazing and just trying to tell them that they're wrong, um, that's going to have a negative outcome on our relationship and it's going to have a, probably a negative outcome on what we're trying to achieve in the first place. So I think the first thing is probably just respect that, give them their space and just try to learn a little bit more about how they're thinking and why they're thinking the way they're thinking. So I'd like to understand a little bit more about, you know, why they believe what they believe in terms of whatever we're trying to change. Um, then I can start to maybe identify some of the barriers that we need to work on over the next few months. So it could be that the intervention that we're trying to um, deliver, they might not believe that actually doing that is worthwhile in the first place. So actually now I need to, to build an intervention that's more centered around motivation and changing how they believe the consequences will be of that. Or it could be that, you know, let's say someone's trying to lose weight and they've tried for, four years and they've always failed or they've always yo-yoed so right they probably might have quite you know low belief in their own capabilities or low self-efficacy so I need to get that bigger picture to see is that you know they could just think I'm coming through the door and saying oh here we go another nutritionist telling me that I need to drop two kilos I can't do it I've never been able to do it and push me away and actually I need to get to the center of of, of what's actually going on and sort of the way they're thinking
0: it's some stuff we're going to revisit later on, but I think the psychology is important there, isn't it in terms of how you go in and work with different um, personnel. So once you've got that stuff and you've got most of the, the athletes or players or staff you know buying in what's the what's the key things for you your first two or three things that you go in and say right from a principal perspective nutritionally, this is what I want to instill and this is where I want the the players athletes to be.
1: so from from a principal perspective, I suppose there are some like big pillars of performance nutrition I would say that we want to get right. I think, you know, the, the high level is very much can we improve an individual's health and can we improve an individual's performance? They're probably the the two high level things um, that we go in and look at And at the center of that, I would say, we're really making sure that one, they're avoiding deficiencies. So whether those deficiencies are from, you know, vitamins and minerals and their micronutrient content, so we might try to establish you know, what is the basic amount of fruit and vegetables or antioxidants they should be aiming to consume on a weekly basis, as well as ensuring that they're getting the right type, timing, and total amount of protein. And then we would look at, I suppose, a few other blocks around it. So are they periodizing their intake or are they matching their energy according to their output on certain days of the week? So when the training loads are higher, are they fueling appropriately when the training loads are lower? Again, are they adjusting? Um, Outside of that, you know, you've know, you got your basics around hydration. Do we have some of the basic principles of hydration in place? Um, if somebody is trying to lose weight, are, do they understand and are they capable of losing weight safely, gaining weight safely, um, as well as getting acute recovery strategies in place, I suppose, for the, the appropriate times of the week? So There'd kind of be some, some pillars. Um, one other pillar, just not mentioned there, I suppose, is, is sleep. And actually starting to look at an athlete's routine around sleep because we know nutrition is incredibly important. Um, but sleep is, I suppose, the wonder drug. So if someone's, you know, eating well and not sleeping well, then there's a huge opportunity missed. So making sure that my nutrition messages support what a sports scientist or another practitioner might be delivering around sleep, how I can enhance that message and improve that that element of of that individual's lifestyle.
0: Perfect. Um, good stuff, Danny. How do you think how do you see obviously it's individual dependent, but how do you think that's best gone about? Do you do group sessions? Is it more individual based? Do you think stuff online, or do you just try and do a, a mixture of the three and hope that the message lands with with as many individuals as you can?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is down to the club and the resource available. So for example, I've been fortunate to be in some organizations where I've been in full time you know every day of the week delivering during a period of a competition or whatever it might be in which case you can really get into the nitty gritty one on one you can sit down and you can start to understand individuals barriers and enablers what they need to work on how best we can attack that other organisations as a practitioner you might be in a day a week you might even i remember i started off way back when in in qpr i think i started off in the academy a day a month um it becomes almost impossible to deliver on an individual basis to a squad that size at that moment in time. And you kind of have to just take what you're given um, to a certain extent. I think in an ideal world, it would actually be a a combination of a few strands. I think there's some basic sort of education and and intervention delivery, which can be done as a group. I think then that can be followed up and I'm going to call it hybrid coaching um, followed up in a hybrid coaching manner, which is you know, we should be delivering some of that ourselves one-to-one, but then there are other elements that can actually be delivered digitally and, and made a bit more scalable and continuous to, to allow that athlete to have a more 24-7 access to the support they need or the resources they need. So I think, I think they're the, the three things that I would really look at would be you would have your group, you'd have some individual level, and then you'd have some digital level. And that group level might not just be in a classroom, it might be some practical stuff, um, cooking, it might be how you restructure someone's physical environment at the club, you know how the food is laid out, how that's done for that group on that day of the week. Um, so there are a number of different routes that you can go down. but I think yeah, the biggest the biggest tie is how much time you have with the organization. <laughs>
0: Well, it links on nice to one that I'm chucking in here because I've, you know, I've worked, well, managed and worked with many nutritionists. In t- from your experience, what do you think the appropriate amount of resource a group of athletes should have to a nutritionist within the week? Do you think full-time is essential?
1: Um, So I think full-time is essential. I think in some sporting environments, it's essential. Um, So, for example, if you've got a, let's say it's a, a season, like... The NBA, where you've got eighty-four games in a regular season, one hundred and fourteen games if you if you've made you're making it to the finals, and you're traveling through multiple time zones, almost every other night. I think in that instance, there's a huge opportunity uh, for an applied practitioner to be able to step in and help deliver hands-on. Um, I think in other organisations, it it kind of depends on the priority of the club, and it. I, I suppose one thing for for me, that took me a while to learn is that when I started off is that, you know, in, in sport, nutrition isn't the most important thing. You know, it's an element of a wider service of delivery that, you know, and for some clubs or organizations, it might be that actually, you know, the management ha- is brand new and they need time to embed their their culture, in which case how much bandwidth does a player have to, to really get into this on a day-to-day basis every day. And it'll be less if they're trying to learn sort of new technical technical um, approaches of a new management team so I'm gonna give a fluffy answer and, and still kind of s- still say it depends on the context and the environment I think at a senior elite level um, I think it's becoming more and more essential, especially with the size of squads if you've if you've a size of a squad is you know um, let's say you're you're an Olympic organization and you've got five people that are going to the Olympics then I don't think that's essential for full-time. I think a lot can be done part-time. But if you're playing in the Premier League and you have a first-team squad that's 35 and you have a reserve squad that's 35 and then you have an academy and you have loan players, well, then I think you actually need you know, maybe two full-time nutritionists. Mm-hmm. So it, it really depends on the size and the scale of the project.
0: For sure. Do you think then, on the flip side, having someone there full-time, especially from an academy standpoint, are you at risk of being over-dependent on that nutritionist to make choices for you? I've seen it, you know, where some players go, oh, can I have this? Does it create the habit of, you know, for them to actually change and think for themselves, can it lead down that pathway if not managed correctly?
1: If not managed correctly, yes, it can lead down that pathway. And it really comes down to practitioner skills. And it's, it's interesting because some practitioners will go into an environment and feel like they need to do all of those things to, to demonstrate their value. And to show that you know I need to be here because I set up the shakes, I put these things here, I fill this, um, and you are right, you know in a lot of instances it 's not it 's not teaching somebody to fend for themselves, which in the long run is going to be more important when you know they 're out of an academy they 're in their own house for the first time, and they have to do the shop, they have to do everything else so if not managed correctly, it can be a bad thing i think it's I think it 's important as well where there needs to be a better distinguishing of you know, what the roles and responsibilities are of a practitioner in an academy setting versus a first-team setting versus another setting. Because, for example, it might be deemed that in, in a first-team environment that they want you to get all of this stuff set up to be done that way to conserve the mental resources of those first-team players. But obviously, in an academy environment, you're actually trying to teach them to fend for themselves to learn these skills to build these habits so that they become more self-reliant so i just think uh, a nutritionist probably has to go into each of those environments with a different mindset and you know be very clear what their role and responsibility is and if the time if they're not required to to do everything for that person if the primary role is to help educate that person motivate that person you know improve the opportunity available for that person to try influence their behavior then they need to go in with with that in mind but it's i mean it's not something you're taught at university if i'm being completely honest like you go through university degrees and they just go here is all the knowledge so then you go into an environment and you go well i need to make myself look like i'm valuable so i'll do all of this i'll help everyone then the players love me because i do everything for them but it it doesn't actually have as big an impact, so there's I actually think there's almost this missing module anyway at university, which is you know practically how you deliver across different environments and, and you know on un- better understanding or better being better able to clarify and understand your role in a different environment as well as better understand behavior change and how you can how you can deliver that and how that also varies across different environments because you know an academy athlete and a senior athlete. You need two completely different hats going into both of those.
0: Sure. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I don't think that's just nutrition. I think that's with all the support services and support staff. You know, A, it's not the most important um, service within the context of the sport. And B, I think that transition into the workplace is huge. And I think it's something within the first two or three years, people are, are thinking fast and le- this, the, the learning curve is so steep, isn't it? In the first two years of the workplace.
1: Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, it's great. It's great to get your hands dirty. Everyone has to get their hands dirty in the first few years, like do do all the dog work. But I, I, I it's still important to have that overarching. Well, what am I trying to achieve here? And what, like you said, am I trying to now make somebody self reliant on me? Because if not, then it might be you know a bit of a restructuring or a bit of a you know taking a step back to better understand how you can achieve what you're what you're what you're aiming to achieve i think a big problem is that people don't actually define what they're trying to do in the first place yeah so if you're going in somewhere and you want to change someone's behavior you need to define what behavior you're trying to change and work backwards from that and you know you need to understand how you can evaluate that how you can measure the impact because if we can't measure the impact well i mean then like i said we're just we're just going in and being an extra set of hands that to a certain extent, that, that becomes quite aimless.
0: Do you think in nutrition is hard because often nutritionists would come into a job role but wouldn't have a direct line manager? Like all the nutritionists here would re- report into me in the academy, for example. Like I'm not a nutrition expert, and maybe my clarity to that nutritionist might not be as clear as it would be to the, the sports scientist or the S&C coach. Do you think having someone in who would be a direct line manager, overarching the culture, the philosophy, would help a little bit?
1: Um, no, I I don't, I think more than anything, I think it's, you know, across all of those, you know, sports science, S&C, feel like anyone in a performance science department, probably one of the most important things is is the ability to, to think critically. And actually, I think if you have a, if you have a line manager or a, a performance director who can improve your ability to think critically about situations, then I think you'll be able to achieve what you need to achieve. I think that is, that is definitely something that I've learned over the years. I've been really fortunate when I was, when I was at British Canoeing, I had a, the PD's, a, a guy there called Brian Kniff. And never have I gone into so many meetings where you get asked one question and you come out and you're still thinking about it three days later. Um, and for me personally, that was, that was the best thing that sort of happened. My, my development was somebody not giving me answers Asking me tough questions, and allowing you to sort of figure it out or facilitate it, or you know, work within your team. We we had a great a great team of practitioners in that particular project, and there was a great willingness to to really take that multidisciplinary approach to to understand from different practitioners' point of view where they were coming from, what we're trying to achieve, what's the bigger picture. You know, in that instance, it was what makes the boat go faster. Um, You know, another. In other sports and scenarios, it's different, but its I don't think it's essential to have a nutritionist supervising a nutritionist. I think in the early years, I think it's very important for a nutritionist to have a mentor or somebody that they can lean on to help check and challenge um, what they're doing. And I think that kind of falls in line with sort of our internal guidelines anyway. You know, I'm, I'm sure the same way you have a network of, of strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists that you'll bounce ideas back off I'd have the same with with nutritionists. And I think actually for a young practitioner, that's probably the most important thing to get early is establish your network um, and don't be afraid to be vulnerable within that network because I mean, we're all here to help each other at the end of the day and, and work towards a common goal.
0: For Sure. No, good stuff there, Danny. Um, just keeping it in with, with the MDT team. And I know I've gone off script a little bit here. Um, how important is it for a nutritionist to really understand the sport and understand certain individuals within the sport? I'll give you a quick example. For example, if you took um, a skin fold or you did some measurements on a particular player, a winger, for example, very lean, very slim. um, And the advice that came out from it is I think he could, put on some muscle mass right that would be the if you just did some whatever testing you did on it but then looking at the player's game as a winger by like his strengths line his pure agility his ability to go around players his recovery run you want to be careful on how much muscle mass maybe that you want to put on with those sort of examples how important is it that the nutritionist understands the sport but also then gets the context maybe from coaches and from other support staff before making decisions
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely essential. Um, you know, a, a nutritionist can't go in and pretend like they're the main expert in in a sport that they've just come into, you know, in, in the last two years. You've got coaches there that have probably been there their whole life. And the nutritionist has to glean information from them and people that have been working in that environment for a longer period of time. So uh, a nutritionist shouldn't come in to to, I suppose, contradict or challenge what's being done at all. I think what the nutritionist can do is come in and sense check a little bit as well. So for example, if the coach says, well, for let's say their skin folds, they say, Oh, I think your skin folds are too high, the nutritionist might come in and go, Well, actually, in this instance, what difference does it make? Five mils here, you know, this person is fit to play, they're recovering well, and we're in the middle of um, a competitive block of congested fixtures. So should their skin folds be five mils lower or should they be available to play every week? Um, be well fueled, be able to prioritize recovery, and I think I think that's kind of where it, the the balance sits. But I completely agree that the nutritionists shouldn't come in and start kicking down doors, saying, "Well, I think this." You know, that we have to respect the the domain experts from the the sports side. That you know, they have to re- respect our domain expertise within, I suppose, um, performance and nutrition. And then it's about collaborating together, you know, because you see it in some sports as well, where a coach will give a player a goal. You need to, you know, you need to gain 10 kilos. You just go, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, you're not going to gain 10 kilos in the next six months, but there may be a longer term plan put in place there to help aid the development and, and you know, physical, physical growth of that athlete over that period of time. Um, So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's kind of, it does kind of work both ways for sure. But, um, but, but definitely you can't – the nutritionist has to understand and learn about the sport from, from the experts that were in it. And again, coming back to the canoeing example, I knew nothing about canoeing before I arrived on my first day of canoeing. And you just have to spend time with the coaches. You have to understand what they want, how they think. Um, why they're doing what they're doing, learn from the athletes who have done this probably since they were four or five. Um, and again, that information with your domain expertise and someone helping you think a bit more critically, I think then you, you'll get to a pretty good place. It comes
0: down again to the, the trust relationships and the softer skills, isn't it? To, to work together, to make decisions. I think they're more powerful then as opposed to just someone making the decision on, on data. Um, dunny quick question for you just before we move on what do you think about um people putting in thresholds of body fat percentage for example so i've seen it at different organizations i like you need to be under 12 percent, for example what's your view on that um i understand it from both sides i understand but yeah what's your views on that is it something you would do or would you support or not if not why
1: i think if you're going to set any target there's, there's got to be a very clear rationale And it's got to be done on an individual basis. So you can't have a band to say, well, look, every player here needs to be below this because different players are going to have different genetic makeups. um, And as a result, some might be predisposed to being leaner. Some might be predisposed to carrying a little bit more fat mass. And you also don't want to create a culture that stems around, you know, oh, well, nutrition is about my body composition. You know, nutrition, nutrition should be about enhancing your ability to adapt to training stimuluses or deliver a big performance when it matters most. Um, so I think in that instance, I would say it's it's on a player-by-player player basis. It may be beneficial for some players who there is a clear rationale to improve their body weight and body composition. For example, a cyclist, we know things like power-to-weight ratio are incredibly important. And if that cyclist is carrying an excessive amount of, of fat mass and they need to get up the side of a mountain, well then, yeah, we need to you know, to improve that power to weight ratio, we need to do one of two things. We need to maintain power and um, lose weight and actually, you know, improve their body composition or it could be that we look to maintain the same weight and improve power, in which case we're going to need to build some some new muscle. So I think it depends on the context. The one thing I would say is it really depends on understanding the sport as well. So for example, we had a scenario last year um, with one of the rugby clubs where, you know, we had a player who's, you know, coming towards the end of their career. And again, should they have to, you know, drop five mils during this preseason? Or is the most important thing, you know, during the preseason that they just tolerate the load? Like preseason's about getting your body ready for the season ahead and completing the planned training sessions. Yeah. So in that, in that player's instance, you know, the goal was, you know, no body composition goal. Can we get through planned training? Can you stay ballpark where you are if you go up Five, ten mils, but you're fit to play and you're completing all the planned training sessions. Well, you're more robust and ready for the season. Yeah, you know, us sending you into a deficit unnecessarily for the sake of vanity is you know, it it doesn't help with the performance outcome in that instance, which you know really is having this person available and fit to play.
0: Perfect, Danny. I could move on and on and, and probe a bit more, but I think you hit an L on head. Perfect. Um all right, moving on then. Um what I've heard from many nutritionists, and like I'm not, I'm not saying the message is wrong at all. But what a big part of the message is around protein consumption and increasing protein consumption or uh, changing the timing or whatever. But protein seems to be a big message from a lot of nutritionists that I've worked worked with or who have worked worked with me. Do you think a? Do you think this is essential? Is this something that is needed, like well, I say worldwide generalizing, but amongst the athletic population, is it something that is undercooked? And b. Is it taken away from other messages and key areas that nutritionists could be um, giving info to?
1: So, uh, protein is essential for athletes, and higher diet, like higher dietary protein requirements, are essential for them to protect, maintain, even enhance their lean mass. So. You know in terms of you know what we deliver its you know it's a cornerstone of what we're trying to get right in an athlete's diet and for you know when you're saying increase, I think you know some athletes may need to increase w- within a certain range, so that could be you know up to you know generally approximately two grams per kilogram of, of body weight is a good target for most athletes. People could be more specific and start working off lean mass or say between one point six and two or two to two point five depending on the scenario, but ultimately. If an athlete is not consuming protein in and around that range, then fundamentally we should be aiming to increase it. We know what impacts it can have on their recovery. What we don't want an athlete doing is training really hard and under-recovering because of an inadequate protein intake and actually that potentially leading to a, a loss of lean mass and function when you know, we know that you know, sport is, is won and lost based, mostly based on bouts of you know, high-intensity activity you know, the ability to produce force quickly, move quickly, um, you know, periods of explosive strength where you can knock someone off the ball and win a challenge. And, you know, we require a certain amount of of mass to do that. And obviously from a strength and conditioning coach's perspective, you know, they're training people to be stronger, and more explosive, and protein is going to help facilitate those training adaptations and feed those adaptations. Um, So I don't think... I don't think it should ever be underestimated. Um, I think you know if an athlete if an athlete is consuming enough protein, I don't think they need to consume more. So you know there's plenty of research to show there's 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 no real benefit to consuming um, you know too much higher. Even people consuming three grams per kilo or higher, that's you know there, there's no added benefit there. You know those calories will be better served going towards carbohydrate to fuel high intensity performance, some micronutrients maybe some fat for that person as well. Some good quality sources of fat looking to dampen inflammation. Um, And in terms of overall message, I would view it as a pillar, but I wouldn't view it as the only pillar. You know, like we said at the start, there might be stuff around dietary periodization and consuming enough energy at the right time. Or, you know, I suppose as Dr. Sam Impey's paper put it, you know, fuel for the work required. You know, are we getting that right? Are we getting... um, you know, avoiding deficiencies with enough micronutrients what's their hydration status like you know how are they recovering are the good practices in place so um i think a, a lot of nutrition could probably be boiled down to the three t's anyway you know are you getting the right type of food at the right time and the right total amount um and that applies generally across most macronutrients and and for most energy requirements and protein is just one of those Perfect.
0: Um, moving on then, Danny, to supplements. Um, you know, t- supplements, topical areas, and, and different ones come come in and out of fashion, I guess. What's your current views on supplements as a whole, in terms of your philosophy in the whole? Because I know there's different philosophies in different practitioners. But what ones then would you prioritise, for what reasons? I know you spoke about the micronutrients and the multivits and stuff, and why, um, and just some common ones that you might use across the board.
1: Sure. So, um. I mean, my overall philosophy on supplements is like we we generally prioritise uh, optimising the diet. So if we can get this, you know, those sources of of nutrients uh, from the diet, we'll prioritise that. In some instances, we can't, whether that's because of we're travelling to a foreign country where we're unsure on food availability, or it's because of a dietary restriction, um, or it's simply something that we just can't get enough of from the diet then then we'll look to include supplements so there is definitely a place for supplements in an athlete's diet um they do need to be viewed like as a supplement you know they are they are additive they're not there to replace um you know we should still be prioritizing this food first approach some things that i would generally lean on especially at this time of year um we would always look towards vitamin d so consuming you know a low non-toxic dose of vitamin D um, on a daily basis. It's a fat soluble vitamin. So we'll generally consume it with a meal. We can't get enough from food. We generally get it from the sun. Um, Obviously during these winter months, we're not gonna be getting the same sun exposure at the right latitudes. And most of us are gonna be wearing long sleeved clothes or full leg clothes. So we're not actually gonna be able to synthesize it in our skin. So supplementing is a good idea. most people, you know, me personally, I'll take about 2,000 IU a day during the winter months. Um, really just looking at my immune function and trying to help to support that. Outside of that, outside of vitamin D, I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve with an athlete. Some people may find consuming uh, an omega-3 supplement beneficial if they can't get enough from their diet, if they don't like oily fish. Um, some people consume plenty of oily fish, in which case would say, well, you, you should be fine on this. There may be sort of targeted strategies of recovery where we might look to to potentially increase that, whether it's you know post operation or something like that as well. But outside of that, I suppose some of the biggest supplements that I I would lean on personally for performance-related reasons would be things like creatine. Um, there may be a time for an athlete, you know, throughout the course of the season, maybe throughout the whole season, that creatine may be beneficial. Um, we know there's also plenty of research now, or or at least some research and more emerging research on the benefits of creatine and uh, I suppose for people who have suffered a sort of a mild traumatic brain injury like concussion and how it might be able to help improve brain energetics during that recovery phase um, and energy availability to, to the brain and then things like beta alanine would be another supplement that I would lean on so beta would be something generally that I would look at for well depending on the sports that I work in but you know high intensity sports where we are trying to improve somebody's tolerance to it might be repeated sprint activities it might just be a threshold you know how high can they hold that that level of performance or that level of intensity um something i I use personally probably both of those when it comes to Gaelic football anyway I think they can be quite beneficial depending on that player for me personally, I would say you know you look at a sport like Gaelic and you go involved in a huge amount of of high intensity intermittent running um you know over a relatively short period of time in comparison to things like soccer um so beta definitely has a place just important to recognize that it needs a loading period um and you know that can be four to ten weeks in some instances so actually preparing for a championship season you might need to think about that a few weeks in advance and you know same with creatine if you know i again there's a I think there's a big benefit there for GAA players. But again, depends on how that GAA player likes to play their game, depends on their role on the pitch and um, depends on their physical attributes as well.
0: Perfect. Um, just going back to the other question around, around protein. Do you think some nutritionists, you don't have to, you don't have to answer this and, and throw people under the bus. Do you think some nutritionists would go more to a supplement based approach first and get kind of carried away with extra supplements before securing the foundations of, of like you said, good food or not
1: um I think some I think in some instances if if a nutritionist is coming into a um let's say a high profile environment and they need results from this person quickly, they may identify that actually as part of a recovery snack, this person is not currently consuming a recovery snack, their main meals are okay and by increasing protein in this recovery snack phase, we might hit the overall target requirement for protein and a supplement may be better suited there. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I suppose, certainly within my network, I'd be very confident that the practitioners are, are putting food first and making sure that the athletes are getting source of protein at breakfast, some at lunch, some at dinner, maybe before bed, depending on their requirements, they have an acute recovery snack in there and then all of a sudden we've ticked that sort of four or five servings of protein throughout the day. Um, as part of that, some practitioners may may use something like a whey protein shake um, because it may, fit, it may fit the requirement of that acute recovery strategy. But I would like to think that no one is saying, I'll just go in and if you don't have any protein at breakfast, just have a shake. And then if you don't have any protein before bed, just have a shake. I would like to think that people are looking for you know, okay, we'll have some eggs at breakfast. We'll have some Greek yogurt before bed because it's going to supply a nice slow release of amino acids throughout the evening. Um, I would like to think people are taking that approach, and I would certainly say that, you know, my my friends and colleagues would be would be leaning towards that direction, but. I can't. I can't speak for everyone.
0: Sure, for <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> just, and and Donny, just before we move on to the last one, I think because you mentioned some great um, supplements there and the benefits of them for different sports, particularly Gaelic football, who a lot of our listeners come from, it's important though that coaches don't listen to this and just start giving all their athletes those supplements. Isn't it? There's, there's a lot. There's a lot of reading to do about it. You need to go and get expert advice around you know to players, like you said, loading phases, amounts, if it fits that individual, etc.
1: Yeah, 100%. Nobody should go in and go, well, look, I heard this in a podcast. So, right, I'm going to go, I'm going to order a crate of this and we're going to give everyone, you know, whatever I Googled. So, yeah, you always always seek uh, professional advice on this. You know, and there's there's some phenomenal nutritionists back in Ireland working across the, the different GAA organizations. Um, and I'm sure they're, you know, they're more than willing if they haven't already to share that information. And again, same with myself, people can always reach out. We can We can share that you know, relatively straightforward and and also important to highlight sort of supplement safety that, you know, a lot of the athletes in the GAA are subject to drug testing. And as a result, the the supplements they do consume do require a certain level of rigor when it comes to batch testing. So we'll always make sure that supplements are sourced that fit a certain requirement. So they might have to be improved by the LGC lab or or informed sport. Um, you know, it could be also NSF certified for sport or on the cologne list as well. So there are a number of certified bodies where we would make sure that a supplement is registered with that. But even then, that's a risk minimization program. There's no guarantee that anything is going to be drug free just because it, it fell under that program. So, again, you need generally a really good rationale to, to include these things. And if you do have a really good rationale, you need to know how to do it uh, as well as sort of where to source it from.
0: No, really good words done, Ian, and I'm sure that will land with a lot of coaches out there. Okay, just the last question before we, uh, we wrap up part A, and then we'll move on to a bit more of present day and career stuff for you. A little bit of fun. Uh, biggest nutritional myths, and I say myths, it might not be myths, but things that you've heard from players or athletes, you don't have to name any names, of course, um, that they believe in that you've had to maybe try to steer them away from, or things that just sure. come to your head, yeah.
1: Carbs make you fat is probably the worst. The worst one. Um, I think you you get a lot of athletes that that can be carbophobic and actually, we know that when it comes to operating at a high intensity, carbohydrates are king. They will help limit fatigue. They will help us, you know, operate. You know, during when we need bouts of you know repeated sprints. You know, we look at most games like we said, won and lost based on the ability to to move quickly when everyone else is fatigued in the 90th minute, in the 70th minute, in the 80th minute if it's rugby. So, yeah, I think the, that that would be one of the biggest myths, and people just need to understand, you know, that that body fat is is more a function of you know excess calories. And actually, if you periodize your intake well of of carbohydrate, and you adjust day by day and meal by meal, um, in line with your energy demands and your fuel demands, then you should be fueling properly for competition, as well as tapering down to focus on on adaptation and body composition at, at other times during the week, but a chronic low-carb approach is, is a useless approach for most athletes.
0: Sure, and I've had a bit of back and forth with Professor Tim Noakes on, on Twitter, but um, I guess right, messages... Adam,
1: did you go, Adam? Did you?
0: <laughs> I've, uh, a couple of years ago, I've tried to tone it down, Danny, because I think if I keep going the way I do, then something might come to bite me at some point, but I think messages like that don't help do they i mean there's there's obviously there's benefits of of that diet in certain individuals especially around type 2 diabetes but i mean when they start venturing into the sporting world and saying listen you can switch all your energy reserve over to fats and you don't need carbohydrates some athletes and players will jump on that bandwagon and believe that
1: yeah and i think i think it's important then for the club you know their sports science and medicine team to have somebody in place or have a process in place to be able to deal with those sort of scenarios and situations to, to have an expert or bring in an expert to, to clarify those myths. Um, Cause you, you're right. You know, you can't extrapolate that across to a sporting context. We know that it is more efficient, you know, to use carbohydrate at higher intensities. You know, we can produce energy more efficiently to, to actually deliver those big performances than we can, you know, from fat in the same period of time. So it's, um, yeah, I think it I, it doesn't it doesn't help. It adds fuel to the fire. But it's it's like any walk of life, you know. Somebody says X, somebody says you're wrong, and then you know people sit on extremes and other sides of the fence. I think the biggest value probably comes in just being, you know, you know we we'll never be able to read everything. No one will ever be able to understand everything, but just trying to to be as as informed as you can will definitely help. And just because somebody has a blue tick, don't take their don't take their word as gospel, probably is one of the biggest points to get across.
0: Sure, I'm sure that'll get across nicely. Okay, Danny, just before we go into section two or, or part B of this, just want to quickly uh, have a quick word from our sponsors or from Kieran talking about our sponsors, RIPP.app, who we're very, very pleased to have on board. Um, so yeah, here's a quick word from from Kieran.
2: This episode is sponsored by Ripped, who have come on board with us. RIPT is a platform that connects coaches with their clients and athletes. Using RIPT, coaches can create individualized training programs and monitor their clients' progress via the RIPT app at www.ript.app where they can track exercise, training loads and very importantly, well-being data. RIPT is used by high-performance teams such as Swim Ireland and GA, and also by gyms and online coaches to manage their clients. We're using it ourselves for the new DSS online training service where you can have your own personal trainer and SNC coach to help you get fit and ready for the season or just lose weight and get fit. We have a special offer for coaches over on our website where you can get two months free access, access to RIPT. Just head over to our podcast page on dailysportscience.com forward slash pod and you'll find a link to sign up for that two months free access. If you'd like some more information on ripped as a service just go to www.ripped.app to read more there thanks again guys for your support
0: okay brilliant so welcome back section two um david dunn here we spoke a lot about nutrition and Dunny's philosophy and different points in the first section now we're going to revert back to a little bit around your career Dunny and currently what you're doing now I forgot to mention actually that the title is nutrition in the modern era and uh, I put that in there because I think you're doing some some great stuff now in pushing nutrition into a different space that it probably hasn't been before Um, so just firstly Dunny so as listed at the start you've worked with a huge range um, an extensive list of teams players organizations which is very highly impressive especially from from an early age talk a little bit about some key learning experiences you've had along the way certain organizations that grabbed you and maybe gave you some learning tools for the future don't have to mention them all um probably best if you don't because it might overrun but yeah anything that grabbed you from early age and just summarize your your career from a learning perspective if possible.
1: Yeah. I- I mean, I've been really fortunate enough to be exposed to quite a, a wide variety of of sports, um, which has been fantastic for my development because you just get you get put out of your comfort zone. You know, I remember, you know, one of my early jobs was in fencing. Like, I, I'd never even seen fencing before, sort of day one and sort of rocking into that. Um, so I think, I think for me personally, some of the most valuable learning experiences I've had has actually just been on the back of being exposed to that, that volume of environments um, and something I'd encourage every young practitioner or every practitioner generally to do um, because I think when you see what the different demands the different contexts are of different sport it, it those challenges like we said before that the ability to think critically and actually you know understand the different people the different cultures those different contexts so I think you know certainly exposure has led to a lot of learning and a lot of rapid learning on the spot. I think if I was to handpick one one organization where i'd say i learned I probably learned the most, probably was at, at British canoeing um, again, I would, like going back, we had a very good team there that um, we I suppose we supported and challenged each other, so I think because we expected we expected a lot of each other it it sort of it held us all accountable and we were also able to help each other sort of solve, solve those relevant performance problems and I was probably you know, because we had a smaller group of athletes where we could get into a larger amount of detail. Um, we had more complexity than sort of a, a traditional sort of UK domestic season where there was blocks of international travel, different environments. Um, I think that was, all, that was all fascinating for me because before I'd gone in there, I'd never thought about, well, actually, what happens? How do we adjust nutrition if someone is traveling through eight different time zones? If um, somebody's on a flight for nine hours, you know, what do we need to do to take into consideration there? They're just scenarios that I never thought of. Now and that kind of sort of opened my eyes a little bit to actually there's there is more to this. Then I think as I got um probably in around 2015 I got quite interested that on the back of getting exposed to quite a number of places, you start to realize that there's there's similar problems just dressed up differently. Um you know a lot of a lot of what we're trying to do is you know, is help people get the basics in place. You know, the basics are 80, 85% of this. Um, some instances, they could even be 90% for some athletes. Some instances, they, that might be all the athlete needs. and um, They might just be talented enough. So I think back in 2015, then when we started to see these sort of patterns emerge, I got particularly interested in in how we could be more effective at delivering. So I think I was spread quite thin then. I was kind of a day or two days a week in in a few places. Um, probably more that could fit into a seven day period at that moment in time. And I think that, that, that learning experience was challenging um, because you're, you are spinning a lot of plates and when you're spinning a lot of plates and you're essentially overstretched, overstretched, you do look at ways that that can improve efficiency. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of energy leaks to a certain extent in service provision. There was a lot of stuff that potentially could be automated that potentially could be made more scalable or more continuous that that just weren't and that was also a bit of an eye-opener for me that you know my my time is most impactful when I'm having a conversation with somebody getting into the nitty-gritty building a relationship you know actually there being present as a person and sort of you know, being on the journey with that person or or really helping them in detail. And a lot of my time was still spent behind a laptop trying to pull together resources, trying to, you know, get systems in place, trying to, you know, produce a certain amount of, of content that needed to go out to certain people. And, you know, that was time that I could have spent, I could have spent, you know, going for lunch with that person and, you know, hearing a little bit more about what was actually going on to, to... To deliver a better intervention um, so i think that was another big learning curve i suppose then as well was was trying to make our trying to make our roles more efficient and start to start to understand that there was an opportunity but at that stage probably didn't know what the opportunity was i was just frustrated
0: And <laughs> sure. i'm sure we're going to come on to the opportunity and where that's led in a minute on the flip side of that Danny, because i'm always a big advocate as well sports scientists and early practitioners have just taking as many opportunities as you can from a learning perspective and also financially as a nutritionist you're going into as a consultant or as a a part-time employer one day a week obviously the more gigs you have the more financially beneficial it is but on the flip side if you stretch yourself too much is there a balance there around especially when you get to the point where you are earning is there a balance where the service you can give to let's say five different organizations in a week is that not as beneficial as let's say three. I know these are arbitrary numbers, but is there a balance on how many gigs you take?
1: Of course, it's 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 and it's not isolated in nutrition. I mean, you could be I could be an accountant, and I could be working for ten firms, and then all of a sudden I I you know I now I work for twenty five. Yeah. Like there's only so many hours in the week, um, so yeah, I think people can definitely overstretch. I think the the frustrating thing in sport, especially for an early practitioner, is you just you know the intern system and everything else is just just uh, like it just abuses people so people almost get to that stage where they're fighting to get a contract so that when they do get one they just need they feel like they need to hang on to everything else because it is such a competitive landscape there's so many people I think There's like 13 and a half 14, graduates every year in sports science that might go down a sports science a nutrition a, a strength and conditioning route and you know there's not that many jobs. Um, so I think that, I think a part of that is born out of the fact that, you know, when you come out of university, to a certain extent, you're just expected to work for free, which I don't think is, is fair or reasonable. It's not something that I believe in. I think people should be, if people want those placement opportunities that should occur throughout their university program to better enhance um, them as a practitioner. So they're ready to deliver when they're qualified. That's something that, that I did. And I think that was massively beneficial to me was I, I really tried to, to shoehorn all my free work into my three-year undergraduate degree or when I'm doing my postgraduate. Um, but I think, yeah, I, you can't spread yourself too thin, but there is this mentality of like, if you get a job, you've got to hang on to it. Yeah. Very few people in sport will go, you know what, I'm all right. I don't need that one. Um, yeah. And if they are in that situation, you know, fair play to them, but it's, uh, it's certainly not common.
0: Sure. I'm, I'm, I haven't turned the job down yet, so I'm in the same situation, um, different things. Do you think it's down to the individual though, Dunny? So like, yeah, I agree the system of coming out of your postgrad and having to do a year for free is ludicrous. But do you think that individual needs to be more proactive during the undergraduate years, second year, start taking on um, internships, getting hands-on experience. So when you do come out of your postgrad, you've got three years and you're warranted a, a salary as opposed to nothing yeah. to offer
1: yeah i think I think it has to be realistic, so I think like that the, the students should demonstrate that they have gained some experience, whether that's during a camp during a part of a season you know it's It's unrealistic to say that that students in full time education and they're also going to now work full time at this organization mm-hmm. so I think that there there should be pockets of you know somewhere between eight to sixteen weeks made available for students to do placements to maybe you know, each year and, you know, first year, they're probably not ready. It might be more of an observational kind of role, you know, their second and third years of their degree, they could go in and do some more applied stuff, hands-on, maybe in a lower down organization where the risks are lower. You know, maybe they have their own network of people where, you know, they play for a, you know, uh, I don't know what, a national two rugby team. And that would be a great starting point for somebody to go in and get their hands dirty and, and have that, like I said before, somebody there as a a bit of a mentor or supervisor i just think you know if if we're going to create these opportunities that there should be a little bit of a mentorship program available for those people at university but i do think like you look at some of the job specs that come out now and you see some of the even the sports science roles like you know phd three level of like three years of applied experience you know 20 25k and you go like it's a race to the bottom so i also think it's on clubs just. just to actually think about why they want a person before they start to advertise those roles, because, you know, do they want somebody to, you know, for nutrition, do they want a nutritionist because they think they should have someone and now they have somebody to fill shakers and clean water bottles, or do they want someone because they're actually trying to go and change the culture at the club, you know, improve the physical performance of those individuals or even their health or reduce the amount of time lost for players to illness and injury during the year. So I I think the responsibility is on the sort of the clubs and PDs as well to to have a better understanding of what they want that person to do and then start to think, okay, financially, what is this worth to us? Because it's um, like the landscape at the minute is, is ludicrous. And certainly what I'm seeing amongst my peers is I feel like it's becoming more and more of a, I'm not, I don't want to say young person, but I'm going, to, I'm going to use the analogy sort of young person's game where, yeah, everyone comes in and rinses themselves for 10 years. And then after 10 years, you go, you know what? I'm going to get a job in industry. This isn't worth the hassle. I need to, you know, if I've got a family and, and kids and I'm in now in Russia and it's Sunday, 9 p.m. and I'm doing this, like it's it becomes a little bit unsustainable as well. So I think it's... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's tough at the minute, I think.
0: Some, some, some great points there, Danny. I totally agree with you with the clubs. I think the organisations and clubs that are doing it the right way for the right reasons, I think you start to see the emerging people they've got in the, in the department, but also some work that's coming out of it. So I think it is clear to see that those that are doing it the right way are, and there are some out there doing it um, are evident. Okay, Danny, moving on to a little bit more uh, present day because I want to talk a little, quite a bit about this. Currently, a part-time PhD student with with Liverpool John Moores, as mentioned, and your co-founder of Hexis. Um, and I'm not going to say anything more. I'm going to hand it over to the expert. Talk to me about those two things, how they coincide, and basically what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, sure. Like I said, back in 2015, I, was, I got pretty frustrated with the um, some of the inefficiencies that we had. So I decided to to self fund a PhD. And back then, I didn't really know what I was looking at. Um, I started off, you know, exploring digital platforms and how we could make ourselves a little bit more scalable. So we kind of spoke to a few people in the field. Uh, I remember chatting to to a nutritionist, a guy called Daniel Davy, you know, way back when, and he was kind of saying, you know, actually I'm now set up a few Facebook groups and things are going pretty well. So we said, okay, we'll give this a go and see what happens. And you could start to see that, you know, you could be in, I don't know, Spain, at a canoe race or a canoe regatta and you could still be interacting with the footballers that are back in the club and scheduling or delivering information that, that could be relevant to them at that moment in time or at least they'd engage with. And it sort of pointed towards that, you know, well, one, online communication is certainly was certainly here to stay at that point. You know, I think that was sort of the earlier days of, you know, WhatsApp had been emerging. Um, Facebook was maybe still you know, just about 10 years old, potentially. You had some previous social media platforms that, had, you know, were starting to, to creep in as well and, and some that had drifted away. So I think this shift towards online behavior and this more global adoption of, of smartphones kind of shone the light to there, there is a way to drive engagement around nutrition and potentially a way to deliver interventions more scalably. So, again, I sort of spent the first the first couple of years of my PhD, I'm going to say reading, I, observing. I'd like to say um, I didn't do a lot of reading at the start. Uh, it took me a while to get up and running. I was a, I was a late bloomer, in the PhD side of things. Um, but we've eventually gone down this route now, where we very much focus on on nutrition, behaviour change, and technology, um, and that's led to the creation of a platform called Hexis. So what we found from practitioners is that. You know we're not trained to deliver behavioral interventions. Um, we don't get that, I suppose, education at university. Um, it doesn't form part of that that curriculum. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is is deliver dietary interventions to to change an athletes' behavior to improve their their health, their training adaptations, their performance. Right now, we're currently delivering education- based interventions, which we know athletes struggle to adhere to. And so really what we wanted to do at Hexas was to, to, to go deep into behavioral science and start to look at, look at a problem. And we, the problem we really focused on was, was fueling. You know, Are athletes fueling at the right time? So are they periodizing their intake according to the demands of their training? Are they fueling so that they can actually you know, prime themselves for peak performance? They can actually operate at those high intensities. And if it is, if it is a big session, we don't want nutrition to be a limiting factor in an under-delivery. But likewise, there might be certain times of the week relevant to their goal that they might need to, to taper down. So we got in contact with a guy called Sam Impey. Dr. Sam Impey did his, his PhD in in this, this area of carbohydrate periodization and, and fueling for the work required. And we also had a, a team from, from UCL and from Duke NUS in Singapore where we just sort of sat down and really really look to put piece together a solution. Uh, and that solution right now is is Hexis. And what we've built is a predictive, personalized and periodized nutrition app for athletes that allows nutritionists to be more effective with their time. So you don't need to waste time sitting behind a laptop, manually putting together a meal plan, trying to troll the internet for recipes to stick a recipe beside each of the options that you've, put into their periodized week we've sort of we've now built an algorithm that will ingest the type the, t- the intensity and the duration of your activity look at how many opportunities there are to fuel for as well as recover from that activity and produce a periodized plan in line with that individual's goal and then tag that with a series of associated recipes from a database of at the minute i think we're up at about 1500 um you know tailored to energy requirements carbohydrate requirements and protein requirements of that athletes, um, so and we've tried to make the recipes as accessible as possible. Like, there's nothing worse than you know, and I, you've seen it in the applied setting. You give an athlete a recipe that has 400 ingredients, and they just look at you like, like what? What do you expect me to do? One, I'm not going to buy this, and even if I did buy it, it says it takes two hours. You know, so even when we're putting together these resources, you know, we've spent a good bit of time trying to curate recipes that are, you know, okay. What do I have at home? I've got oats. I've got peanut butter some honey, some nuts, some seeds. Okay, cool. Let's make a no-bake flapjack bar. Start to finish, four minutes. Snacks done for the week. Perfect before, you know, if it's the GAA guys, you know, before they go out for that evening pitch session on a, you know, let's say it's a, a Tuesday or Thursday or the bigger sessions, or a Monday or a Wednesday, depending on when they're playing that week. So, that that's really what we've done. Um, So, our aim is very much to, well, I suppose from a personal level, it's probably solving a pain that I suffered, which was You know, we waste a lot of time that could be spent with people, you know, coaching people, building relationships, um, getting into the finer details of performance. And we waste that time doing, you know, manual meal plans, pulling together recipes. So we hope that the solution allows, to a certain extent, allows nutritionists to sort of unlock their own potential um, and actually be able to, when they do go into a sports organization now, not have to worry about that element, but actually get into the finer details of how they can, they can bring that club or that individual to the next level.
0: Sounds fascinating stuff, and, and we're desperately waiting to use it here at QPR. I know we missed the study, um, the study period, but no, we're really looking forward to getting the lads involved in that. So just to be clear, Danny, for the listeners, it's, it's AI, yes? It's all machine-based, so there's no, all the algorithms are set, and once the information gets put in from an individual, then the, the relevant content is populated to that person, right?
1: Yeah, so in terms of inputs, um, I mean, we, we've built an expert, an expert system. Um, which would be what you'd say is the AI system that will ingest when in a day that that individual is training, when in relation to their meal pattern, it will look at the the type and the intensity of that individual session. So it's predictive. So it's going to be subjective in advance. Um, you know, I know I'm going into, let's say it's a Tuesday night. It's going to be a, you know, high intensity pitch session. I can rank it as that. And now we can predictively, um, personalize that individual's fueling requirements so it is periodized throughout the week so we will look to yeah ingest that information uh and then i suppose in a matter of seconds produce that that periodized plan so hopefully we're helping athletes you know with their planning behaviors have a an easier to access solution in terms of we use a a visual traffic light system stemming from from sam Impey's research Uh, this sort of low, medium and high or red, amber and green sort of carbohydrate requirements and energy requirements. That's really what we're looking to tailor. It's like we said before, we're looking to keep protein pretty consistent in the background. And then, you know, one of the hardest things in nutrition is for most people is actually converting it into food. Like that's great, but like put it on a plate, like make it something that's quick and easy and I can do in 10 minutes because otherwise game over. So that's why we invested a huge amount of time and resource into to building that recipe, recipe database. So I know myself and a few other practitioners have been working hard on that. Um, we've actually got a girl back at Longford at the minute. I think she's an inter-county GAA player herself. So she knows, she knows what she's looking for from a, from a performance perspective too. And she is, she's helping us out um, build some great content there too.
0: Perfect. And I'm sure you've, you've done all the studies on it and the thorough testing, but it, how robust is this system? Like in terms of the info that's going in, are you confident that it will just churn out like perfect results within context of that app?
1: Yeah, I think it's like anything. You've just got to look at it as an iterative process. You know, this is, you look at something like, and I'm not saying we're anything like this at all, but you look at something like, you know, the, the first Macintosh that came out, you know, it, it wasn't what a, what a MacBook is now. But it's sort of a step in the right direction. So I think we've got the first step in the right direction, which is that you know, in particular for for intermittent field sports, I'm you know, I'm I'm pretty confident about everything. Um, I think there there is stuff, and we've got internal projects that we're we're always looking to improve. Um, ultimately, we're trying to solve a pain for practitioners. So you know, if there's something that's painful to them, we want to hear about it. We've got a team of people that are just dedicated now to to solving it. Because I've been on the other side where you're you're just suffering you don't have enough time you need to pull these things together and it's it's limiting your ability to actually deliver your services to that organization so i've kind of we've dedicated ourselves to helping those people um and we want to build a bit of a community around it we want people to not be afraid to come forward with those things tell us more of what they want we'll help build the solution
0: Sounds perfect. No, it seems like you're you, starting to really build a, a viable solution for a lot of practitioners. So the, the solution side and logistics is one thing. Um, obviously, the emergence of technology and you see now the modern player, the modern athletes always on their phone. You know, it's, it's, it's the way of, way of life, even, even us, I'm sure. How important is that going forward? And how important is that technology is embedded into these resources, not just nutritionally, but maybe a lot of other ones as well going into the future from a learning perspective? And also, does it Is there a worry that it can be replaced from the conversation and that one-to-one interaction you do get with a practitioner?
1: So I think it's impossible to ignore technology at the minute. I think that, like, the stats are in the UK, I think it's 97% of 16 to 57-year-olds own a smartphone and check it on average every 12 minutes. So, like, there's been this pretty ubiquitous uptake that, you know, trying to say okay we'll ignore this is is just naive and um, we've now been afforded an opportunity to to make ourselves more scalable I don't think it'll ever replace us because the human interaction is is too important we are we are social beings you know we we like conversation and um, we like building relationships and we and we like meaningful relationships you know if i'm an athlete i like knowing that the person i'm working with cares about me not that it's a robot because now i know that they're willing to go on this journey to to help me deliver what i need to deliver likewise from a practitioner like i like going on those journeys like that that's why you do what you do you know there's dark times there's you know there's there's great times but it's um you know it's that process which is which is enjoyable so, I, I, I firmly believe we're going into this era of, of hybrid coaching, really, which is where I think practitioners are just going to become even better at what they do because computers are just going to afford us more time on certain tasks. So, certain tasks, like I've said, you know, um, individually producing periodized meal plans and then tailoring recipe requirements, that takes time. That takes time for one person. If you've got a squad of 60, That's your your full week gone. But that is something we can teach a computer to do. That could be a rules-based system. That can be, like we said before, that's an an AI expert system. But the ability to understand what's going on in an individual's life, understand how I'm now going to fine-tweak or fine-tune everything around their performance, around the restrictions because how far they have to travel to training, what supplements they may be taking, what's happening at home, you know, their halftime strategies that like practitioner can come in and really help deliver that. But now you might have time to deliver that to the full squad. Whereas before you, you may have had time to deliver that to five or 10 people because every time you speak to this person, you've got to go away and produce the plan for it. So I think we're entering into an era of hybrid coaching where yeah, computers will do what they're good at and practitioners are going to just become a lot better at what they're getting paid to do in the first place
0: So it's important to note that it's, it's not just a computer-based approach that's there to enhance the service that the nutritionist is giving right
1: yeah 100 percent. and it's you know i think again you can look at different people's autonomy some people may like a more computer-based approach and a lighter touch from a nutritionist some people might like a you know, a bit more hand-holding from the nutritionist. And this is something that I'm exploring and that our team are exploring with our research now, you know, what is, what is the intensity of nutrition coaching that is delivered? Should that actually be personalized and periodized? And can you profile for that? So we know everyone's different, but you know, how different are we? You know, maybe I'm one of these people that I like to be spoken to every week. I like, someone checking in maybe that accountability is important or maybe I could be one of those people that if somebody's always asking me every week I just go this person's wrecking my head don't worry I'm looking after it so I think there's I think it's important to to at least consider that um as a practitioner now it's we are personalization for me um I'm hoping this will be the title of, of, of my next paper for the PhD, but personalization for me is just moving beyond grams per kilo. It is no longer about, you know, based on this body weight, based on this size, based on, you know, your sport, this is how much food you need. It will become about how you deliver that intervention via what modes, at what intensity, for how long, by whom. That, that's where I think we're going. You know, and technology has afforded us that, and it might scare some people. Um, and like anything, I think we're going to get early adopters. But I think you know that—that's the way we're going. We've learned so much about designing interventions for the muscle. We forgot about the mind. And if—if um, if the whole point of what we're trying to do is to shift or change an athlete's behaviour, well, then how—how how can we optimise that? how do we actually influence that because we know now education isn't enough there's enough research now to show that education in and of itself even at an elite level yes it can improve someone's knowledge but that knowledge doesn't translate into a change in behavior you know and, and on the flip side you know somebody might not know what to do but because of the way something was structured a message was delivered or an environment was set up they now might make the right choice so it's interesting i, I, I find this the face faci- uh the this space fascinating i don't think we'll ever know enough i think we'll always start to learn more these things are going to involve over evolve over time to a certain extent we've just got to stay quite agnostic as to the approaches we take because we're just going to go through this rapid phase of of change anyway and in, in what what our service provision looks like and the tools that are afforded us.
0: Uh, Cheers, Danny, thank you very much. Talking about behavior change, um, which is a big one of yours, and like you said, your team are looking at quite uh, thoroughly. Do you think in general, nutritionists lack a little bit of knowledge around the psychology of maybe why people are making these choices? And too often you tell the, the, the player or the athlete that yet yeah, you shouldn't be doing this, but actually there's deep rooted reasons to why they are doing that and going back to type and, and maybe doing behaviors that aren't seen as, as ideal for their performance or health. Do you think there's something that could be done with their better educational around that area?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, we're, One, we're not psychologists. You know, we're not trained psychologists, and it's important to recognise that. I do think we'd benefit from from behaviour change training. You know, you do look at you know what is available in the literature that just is currently siloed from sports nutrition, and it's it's just about making its way into sports nutrition. And you know, we're now seeing people referring to theories um, or theoretical constructs and bringing in things like the behaviour change wheel or the com model, which will exist in, in that other field. But even then, we're seeing people bring these in and we're not seeing them deliver interventions. We're just seeing them capture barriers and enablers in relation to those behaviours. You know, for us to learn, we need people to, to design, develop, and deliver theory and evidence-based behavioural interventions to improve our understanding of what is and isn't working for different types of people. And we need to look at though we need to look at better study designs to to capture this, you know. an CT is not it's not a gold standard anymore. You know we have to look at adaptive design, um, things like, um, I suppose, smart design interventions. Um, you know where people could you know let's say I'm trying to get from A to B, I could go from A to B via A A1, one, A 12 a13 to B that could be the route I take you could take A2 A2 to whatever so there's there's different paths and um to get there whereas at the minute you know we look at traditional study design and sports science one studies are really poorly powered we think we get 20 people and we think that's great I just it's it's it when it comes to changing it's it's not good enough I know there are limitations but we need to collaborate as a field maybe start to start to join up and stop looking at you know our own labs or teams in isolation um if we want to carry out some of this meaningful research and i think we need to look to other fields who might have some of the solutions that we're looking for but because we exist in this echo chamber where we're leaving a wealth of knowledge siloed you know what answers do computer science have what can we learn from behavioral science um you know, what do we not know about, you know, interaction or interaction design, even design? Like you look at all these different platforms that have all of these different features that manage to hook us and bring us back and, and change our behavior. You know, sometimes we're just trying to get somebody to drink a bit more water. You know, there's definitely stuff that we can learn. I just think it's, for me, a multidisciplinary approach isn't the nutritionist speaks to the s c speaks to the coach, speaks to the physio it's got to go beyond that now it's got to go within that sporting environment what other areas of expertise can we bring in you know what you know what can a sports team learn from a startup from a well established business you know all of those different elements are yeah i mean it's just my opinion and i'm i'm more than happy for people to say you're wrong you know you're And and that's, that's completely, everyone has their opinion. I just, I think in the last few years, since I've kind of stepped out of the nutrition space and kind of seen what's going on in other spaces, it's made me think, like, we are, we just are scratching the surface. And until we actually take a step back, appreciate everything else that's out there, and just start to understand our limitations, like how many limitations we have, and that the answers might not exist within our, our field of expertise, then I think we could be, we could be stuck. But if we can, then great. I just think we're, we're just going to, you know, go on this new journey.
0: Yeah, Danny, I totally agree with you. And I think your critical thought process comes out all the time, which is something that I always, always resonate with. Just sticking within the psychology theme, because I want to just, it it might be a sensitive subject, maybe, maybe not, but just around like eating disorders, make something that I was personally uh, involved with when I was younger um, and I've had experience of players going through this like the nutritionist for me is so powerful in uh, I wouldn't say triggering these but I think it's sensitive in how you relay information to certain individuals like what's your thoughts on that are you are you equipped enough to go into a consultation with someone who might be prone to to be this extreme and take certain things overboard or is that something that is a learning process or again do we need to learn from from outside of the, the discipline
1: I think more than, well, the most important thing here is that anything clinical, if you're a nutritionist, you're not qualified to deal with it. So if somebody came to me with an eating disorder, I would refer to a trusted dietitian that has the relevant clinical expertise to handle that situation. So um, if you're a nutritionist and not a dietitian, you should not be managing those situations. You should be referring them on to a, a dietitian with relevant expertise within that area to be managed clinically. So, I mean that, yeah, that's probably the biggest point on this um can nutritionists set off these based on how they deliver information? Sure, they can, you know some athletes are incredibly vulnerable. a lot of people will hear what they want to hear um in particular, if they have a a certain thought process or belief system it could it could add to that um it could add to that echo chamber that already exists. And you look at things like social media, like Instagram, the way they're set up is that you are going to believe normality to be what you're perceiving on your feed, even though what you're perceiving on your feed has been curated for you based on your likes and your interests. So Mm -hmm. now your likes and your interests appear more normal than what they actually are. So I think, I think the whole, I think it's, it's not just nutritionists. I think the way technology is set up, um, can can further feed into this, and I know there's been some research on this as well, looking at um, looking at some disordered eating. But yeah, nutritionists have to be very careful in how they deliver information, um, and I think as well it's important to recognise probably one of the most important things I think is to recognise and understand in enough detail who you're speaking to and what the risk factors are. You know the risk factor for speaking to a senior men's football team is very different to an under-15 female team. Mm-hmm. Um, messages do have to be tailored and portrayed in a certain way, not to not to add fuel to the fire per se, but to provide the relevant support and guidance that, that those people need at the, that moment in time. And again, looking at so a good example would be you know a good friend of mine has um, done some great research in in underage football you know looking at the energy requirements of youth football athletes and Marcus Marcus Hannan you know came up with some great research that sort of highlighted the volume of energy these youth athletes need so you don't want somebody that's going to come in and say oh actually you need to to really reduce your intake here you need a you know a low energy meal at this moment in time you know that's gonna cause confusion and skew the message and potentially lead to, to negative outcomes. So yeah, nutritionists can add fuel to the fire. They need to be very aware of, of what they are doing and yeah, be very careful in how they plan to deliver um, to, to that particular audience at that moment in time. But if there is ever any issues, it's just, it's clinical, it's got to be referred and handled with in an appropriate manner.
0: Cheers, Danny. I, um The reason why I brought that up, well, twofold, really. I think that there's still maybe some misbelief around that these disordered eating habits or eating disorders actually occur, in, especially in senior male clubs and football and Gaelic and whatever. And also, I think you're right. I don't think it's just the nutritionist that has the onus on this. I think with food, it's obviously the speciality in your area. But I think coaches, sports scientists need to have an awareness of certain individuals and, like you say, how vulnerable they are, for sure. Um, all right, Danny, just before we jump on to the last question, just moving around the Hexas app, it might be hard for you to, to answer this one, but for the normal general population, when would this be? When would this app be available or the service or resource be able to purchase or acquire for their teams?
1: Sure, yeah, we're, we're getting close, which is great. Um, first of all, for teams or organizations, we're actually... Uh, we <laughs> that want to find out more do let us know there's over a thousand athletes on the platform from a variety of, of male and female squads and yeah we're seeing some, some really interesting stuff definitely helping a lot of athletes fuel smarter which is awesome so teams or organizations can get in contact now and, and we have the solution ready for, for them for I suppose the the recreational athlete or the serious enthusiast who's who's looking to get that that secret sauce or that cutting edge I would say It'll be sometime in the first half of next year. I'm hoping in the first quarter we should have it sort of live and up up available to to uh, yeah to activate a membership with us.
0: And where's the best place to get hold of you, Daniel, or someone of the, the the team?
1: Yeah, so for people that want to get hold of me, um, I suppose the best one is is David at If you want to find out more, um, I get back to a lot of messages there each day. Um, or they can sign up to find out more on on the website hexasapp.com as well for people that want to find out a bit more about me um, they can get me on Twitter or Instagram which is just at the nutritionizer Um, basically nutritionists just spelt with a T my first one of my first gigs at Harlequins they managed to spell spell that that title wrong on the card and all the stuff I was given so I managed to stick with me since then (laughs)
0: brilliant i never knew that story that's great um perfect well done i'm sure everyone will be well i'm sure you get flooded with different messages to be honest so but hopefully long term that helps you out thank you so much for your time today i just want to finish off with a with a um an everlasting thought from you i guess uh, for for coaches and sports scientists and nutritionists um coming out of university so first one for me of this two-part question what advice would you give to sports coaches or sports scientists who don't have any nu- nutritional support in terms of a nutritionist or online platform service. What's your best advice to those in terms of providing some sort of service to their to their squads or athletes?
1: Um, I, yeah, probably the main thing is kind of stay in your lane. So look look for expertise, build your own network of people. You don't need a full time nutritionist to deliver some form of nutritional nutrition service, but yeah, you should look to. To find somebody in your network that you trust that is qualified that can sort of help guide you in um providing that sort of basic level, basic level of guidance. You know, and if they want to reach out to us at, at Hexus, we have all of that ready and good to go. So by all means, they can they can get in contact with us and I'm sure we can help out.
0: Perfect. And and the second part was to actual nutritionists coming out, which we covered a little bit. Um, into industry what's your advice to those that are emerging as practitioners or maybe starting starting to be educated to become a, a practitioner
1: probably twofold would be the first thing would be get your unpaid work out of the way at university like we said and um, definitely it's going to save you save you time hassle and money in the long run and try to get try to get a mentor or, or a small network of people that you can bounce ideas off and learn so we we are a, a friendly bunch and an inclusive bunch. So I think what you'll find is, you know, if we can help, we will help. So I think it's important to have that that sounding board as you start to go. So try find somebody that you might be able to to get a little bit of advice off, even if it is one phone call every couple of months, just to just to check you're on the right tracks.
0: Perfect. Dunny, um, your your stuff has been gold, uh, invaluable. I'm sure listeners will love it. Thank you very much for coming on and taking the time today. We really appreciate it.
1: No worries at all. Thanks for having me
0: no problem um this is the locker room podcast you just listened to episode 29 with david dunn um a little word from myself kieran and joe about upcoming stuff or stuff that's on the website now please head over to the website com and you'll see a whole range of services we can provide on there for different uh, membership options um thank you once again and look forward to seeing you seeing you soon
2: The Locker Room Podcast is brought to you by dealysportscience.com, an online elite coaching and sports science service, membership service. Uh, you can search all the information and services over at DealeySportsScience.com. You'll see everything over there. I'm here with Ross and Joe. Lads, there's loads of stuff going on at the moment. Ross, you've, we'll run through really quick. Ross, you've got a really interesting off-season coaches CPD series, video series for the members.
0: Yeah, yeah, really good, here. So six-part um, uh, presentation, six-part presentation, six different topics that uh, are kind of out there on social media and stuff. And I'm kind of, let's say, doing three to four of them, and, and you guys are taking the baton on that. So really good so far. We've had two release based on the individual training session and periodization. I recorded one recently around developing the individual player. We've got one around the physical corner, and then you guys are taking over the tactical side and also the environment and culture so really good um, opportunity especially with things going on in Ireland at the minute to learn and, and keep sharing information so really enjoyed that really good feedback um, and they'll be released throughout the next six weeks
2: Great stuff Joe there's loads of Gaelic football and hurling practices going up as well Yeah there is, Karen uh, every, every week there's uh, there are Gaelic uh, practices going up <clears throat> and I know that Ross talked about um, I think I'm doing CPD session four which is how to set up a team tactically so um, uh, I'm putting up uh, some
0: kickouts there, for instance, and some uh, defensive structures that coaches can get used to in the off season and plan, plan to bring in maybe, maybe next season. So yeah, lots of stuff there uh, coming up on the website in terms of practices.
2: Good stuff. We've got an off season uh, GA program as well in terms of gym program and fitness and running program as well, uh, designed by Ben Smalley, our sports scientist as well. Um, and overlooked by Ross as well head of performance so that's really good for all members so they're all exclusive members the last two things to mention then is the locker room webinar series which is closed for exclusive for our DSS members so that's every second monday night we bring on an expert to do a presentation a powerpoint presentation through zoom everyone can dial in live and then ask some questions as well It's been really popular and it's a brilliant new initiative. We're always coming up with these new initiatives. The last thing then to mention is the Buddy Referral Scheme. So that's where a member can send a referral to their friend. The friend will get 25% off the sign-up fee and then the person, the member, will get access to one of the GA positional profile videos. So Ross, we did them over the last few weeks. I think there's some good content there.
0: Class content. I think it's a great initiative instead of just, you know, normally the person who refers someone doesn't get anything and the the new member gets whatever the offer is. But this stuff is gold dust, in my opinion. You know, you get info on what uh, each positional essential is and what you're looking for for each player and how to coach it. So it gives you real good information on, on developing the individual players in your team.
2: Yeah, exactly. And remember, for members, it's less than 15 quid a month. Ross, that's less than a Ross Bennett haircut once a month to cut back those golden
0: locks and less than, I think, the book I wrote four years ago still hasn't creaked up to 15 quid, so <laughs> you're getting so much for that, for sure. Yeah, and this hair, I only get a haircut once a year, kid. so 15 pounds a year is not bad, it, I don't think.
2: Yeah, the girls in the house here, Ross, they just said, what is the point in Ross Bennett if he doesn't have long, flown, blonde hair? They get disappointed exactly. when it's cut. I
0: know, it's, it's coming back, it's coming back.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, the book, so for the price of Ross Bennett's book, which you should all go out
0: and, and buy, I've forgotten the name of it now. At the moment, but I can tell you, kids, injury <laughs> prevention and rehabilitation. Now, he never knew I was going to plug that on here, but I need to sell <laughs> Christmas is coming up. I need some sales. Christmas is coming. I've got two copies of them here, Ross. So we can maybe
2: we can sell that off secondhand to Joe. He might yeah, he might be able to use it. You need them for the doorstop in
0: those heavy doors of yours.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Joe, I was just about to say that you you'd need um, you'd need a few quid for the online dating, but those days are over for you. Uh, yeah, I think they are cured. <laughs> Hopefully.
0: Hopefully. Good to hear it. We he tried to, to keep it quiet, but those weekends in the new forest we knew you wasn't going on your own, Joe. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was it was dodgy. It was dodgy. 15 quid Joe
2: per month, not much. Yeah. Yeah, 15 quid a month. Yeah. I've I've had a look at uh, I think four or
0: five of their positions and I've never ever seen uh you know, uh, as much detail in terms of the different positions in, in football, in Gaelic football, broken down into so much detail. So, there's lots of, uh, as Ross said, it's gold dust. There's lots of great learning points there for coaches yeah. and managers.
2: Great, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, uh, enjoy the rest of the episode, everybody. The podcast, remember, dlisportscience.com and head over. Um, we've actually started a new offer for listeners to the podcast. So, just use pod20 as a voucher code to sign up membership and you get 20% off as well so for any new members out there or relapse members just use pod 20 and you get 20% off membership a good time as the lads say Ross was saying with all the new CPD and everything so a good time to join up okay enjoy